Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast, this is the show where we make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zoa. I'm financial planner and owner of Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial planning firm that work with business owners, professionals, and those planning for retirement. I've been doing this podcast for a bit over a year now, and there are plenty of old episodes, which I welcome you to search on iTunes, or certainly go to iTunes and subscribe to the Finance Hour. You can also go to my website, Adapt Wealth, and I've got the podcast on there as well. But if you do have a chance, go to iTunes. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating. That will just mean that we can uh, reach more people. And that would be most appreciated. Just a word from our lawyers, general advice today, nothing that I say here you should do without getting any specific advice for your personal situation, be it from a financial planner, an accountant, uh, a lawyer, or even the uh, your friend next door who comes over for a barbecue. Often they can give you the best advice, uh, particularly things around Bitcoin. Uh, everybody knows how to make uh, plenty of money off that. So feel free to take anyone's advice because it's a sure way to make an easy million dollars. Anyway, for those of us that are going to go for a more conventional type of investment strategy, particularly if you are on your path to retirement, you're you're retired or you're sort of planning retirement, or you're just thinking how can you use your investments to generate a decent income and make sure that your capital lasts longer than you do. And that can be a challenge, definitely in this low interest rate environment. Uh, So we're going to have again on the show one of our favorites, Tim Farrelly, who is the principal at Farrelly's Investment Strategy. He gives guidance uh, to financial planners like myself on how to structure our investment uh, for clients, particularly around asset allocation, so how much we should have in the different asset classes, shares, cash, property. And as you'll hear, he's got a particular focus on retirees and people's planning their spending in retirement uh, to maximize the likelihood of their capital lasting longer than they do and even with a bit of luck leaving a bit aside for the next generation. So we're going to have him on the phone a little bit later. Uh, He's in a taxi on the way to the airport. Apparently his cab driver's got lost uh, so it may be a little bit longer uh, to get him on the line. We might play a bit more music today than we normally do but uh, hopefully we should get him on the phone. So we're going to then do my two segments first. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick musical interlude, and then we're going to go with Ruben's Rant. Welcome back to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on Jair or on our podcast. This is the show where we make sense of the world of business and finance and help you make better financial decisions. Now it is time for Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about the Facebook data breach. Uh, it's been dominating the news. Uh, an organization called Cambridge Analytica, at the data firm that uh, worked with Donald Trump's election campaign, apparently they extracted Facebook data from 50 million users and they used that information uh, to help target uh, voters for Donald Trump's uh, campaign in the election. Everyone's got up in arms about this. How did 
uh, Facebook give access to all this information about people and there's big news all over the place. Mark Zuckerberg's copying it every which way you look at it. So my rant is this. What is the news? What is the big deal? People put everything on Facebook. You put photos of your family. You check in where you're going on holidays. You check in where you've gone on a family trip. Everything is on Facebook, and everybody knows that companies use that data. Facebook sells that data for companies to use to help market different things to you. We all know that. That's nothing news. It's there for the public to see. So why on earth would you be surprised if this information was used to, to help target people for for uh, political campaigns. If you don't want your Facebook data to be public, get off Facebook. But don't complain when people you put everything on Facebook and then people use that data to help target things for you, whether it's for political reasons or to sell you a pair of shoes or anything. Don't be so surprised. I think that this is hugely overdone and everyone's jumping on board. It's now getting to a real case of tall poppy syndrome with these big players. And having said that, I did actually listen on uh, a business program yesterday to a fellow called Jim Mellon, who's a British billionaire, and he thinks that the big tech stocks, uh, what they call the FANGs, that stands for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, are in for a really tough time. They've basically escaped any serious company, it's serious uh government regulation up until this point because the government hasn't really known what to do with it Uh, but that regulation is coming and it's going to hit them like a ton of bricks so he feels that it's the same thing that happened with the banks in terms of the government's regulating them hugely they're going to start regulating the facebook amazon the netflix and the googles and that is going to affect their company in badly and their share prices are going to fall So that is my rant of the week. Don't be surprised when your data in Facebook is used to influence your buying decisions or even your political decisions. That's my rant. Uh, We're going to have another quick break now, and then it will be time for my propeller head of the week. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. It is now time for my propeller head of the week. Now, my propeller head of the week this week is about uh, financial counselling service, which is a fantastic service, which a lot of people don't know about. So just so you're aware, financial counsellors are qualified professionals. They provide information, support and advocacy to people in financial difficulty. They work in community organisations and their services are free, independent and confidential. So when people get into difficulty, they see all these advertisements on television for different places they are going to help get you out of debt. Usually when you see those, you should run a mile. Most of those uh, programs are actually designed to get you into further debt. But the financial counselling service is a fantastic service out there. As I said, it it doesn't cost you anything. And really it's important because at some point, well, maybe you or somebody you know is likely to hit financial difficulty. And one of the best things you can do is point them in the way of a financial counsellor. So some of the things which a financial counsellor can do helps people manage their debts uh, because that's often what happens when people get into difficulty. They've got a lot of debts. They help people prioritise which debts that they should pay off. Uh, they'll explain your rights as well. They can advocate and negotiate for you. So in many circumstances, they can at least put a repayment holiday on some of your debt. And also in some circumstances, they can arrange uh, for part of the debt to be 
uh, to be forgiven. So that's really, really important. They can also help you looking look at your budget and just help you look at your different options to get out of financial difficulty. Uh, in my work with Jewish Care, we've got a fantastic financial counselling service. I've seen how it makes enormous difference to people's lives. Uh, but there are financial counsellors in all sorts of organisations. And a fantastic website, Financial Counseling Australia. Uh, I recommend that as your starting point. Uh, they've got a phone financial counseling service, or they've got a directory of all financial counselors out there. So, highly recommend if you or someone you know is hitting financial difficulty, don't wait, just get straight onto uh, the Financial Counseling Australia website and go from there. Okay, that is my propeller head of the week. We're going to take a short break, uh, and we've got about 10 or 15 minutes till we get Tim on the phone. So we're going to see, I'll play a bit of music, but I might even be able to get a quick bonus interview in between now and then before we get Tim on the line. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on JR or on a podcast, live on our podcast, well, maybe not live, but... Today, our topic is, will your investments last longer than you do? And to have a chat about that, we've got Tim Farrelly. We've had Tim on before. Uh, He's a principal of Farrelly's Investment Strategy, which was established in 2003. It guides financial planners such as myself on how to structure investments for clients, particularly around asset allocation. So that's about how much we have in the different asset classes of shares, property, cash, Uh, Tim likes to look at the big picture, doesn't worry too much about which particular share. And he's also done a lot of work on retirees, so people uh, working out if their capital will last long enough for them to spend in retirement. Tim's just had a bit of drama uh, getting to the airport. I think hopefully he's found a a place to talk to us. Tim, do I have you on the line? G'day, Ruben. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks very much, Tim. I know it's been a bit of an eventful morning for you, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, you're sitting at the airport somewhere. You're not. You're not in the Qantas lounge or anything like that. Well, I, I was going to the lounge, but they make too many announcements, so I'm outside. And hopefully, we don't get too much beeping of horns. Okay, no worries. Well, I think I can hear you pretty well. So, Tim, look, we're going to talk today about uh, will people's investments last longer than they do, last beyond their life expectancy. Uh, I know that's something you've done quite a bit of work on. Uh, so I want to just start the conversation with you. Uh, I was just having a look at the uh, retirement standard. There's a group called ASFA. I can't remember what they stand for, but they do a retirement standard uh, for people, whether they want to live a modest lifestyle or a comfortable lifestyle. And what they've said for a couple, a modest lifestyle is about $35,000 per annum. And for a comfortable lifestyle, it's about 60000 per annum. That obviously doesn't include first-class trips anywhere. But my first question to you is, as a general rule, let, let's say people want a comfortable lifestyle. I mean, this is a broad question, but as a general rule, are Australians set up to have a comfortable lifestyle in retirement? Well, I mean, everything is relative. Uh, I think many people are, um, some aren't. And, uh, I mean, it's a bit of the old Mr. McCorber's rule. You know, the income, what was the income? Two pounds, one shilling expenditure, two pounds a year or whatever, a month a week. Happiness expenditure, two pounds, two shillings. Misery, it's it's having a budget, working out what you can afford and then making the most of it. Yeah. 
So, look, what I want to talk to you initially about, and, and I did see that you'd done a, a video on this uh, the other day, uh, there's a concept of a safe withdrawal rate. Now, when I was first starting financial planning about uh, maybe 20 years ago, I remember I was taught to say, look, you can probably expect to get a 5% roughly return from your investments. Uh, and so if you've got, say, a million dollars, you could expect, if you're retiring with that, to generate an income of about $50,000 per year. And in you know, most usual circumstances, you'd probably be able to keep your capital intact, so you wouldn't even be eating into your capital. Uh, and you can expect to have a reasonable lifestyle, provided you keep your expenses in roughly that that sort of category. Obviously, if you go higher, you'll reduce your capital. I know now that there's been some work in the States and they say that rate is more like 4%. What's your view about about the the viability of those sorts of rates or what's a reasonable rule of thumb for people? The first rule for thumb is there is no rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you've just made my job a whole lot harder. Well, the 4% rule, as they describe it in the States, is based on someone who is 65, doesn't get Social Security, has 60% in equities, 40% in bonds, yep. and increases their expenditure and lives a full life expectancy, but no more. Yeah, yeah. So in the real world, you know, if I'm 70, my situation is different than if I'm 60. Mm. If I'm very conservative, my situation would be different if I'm taking a bit more aggression with my investment. Right. The pension makes a huge difference in Australia because it, it is a safety net, which means you can spend more, particularly with the penal rate of the asset test. Yeah. Let's just uh, pause on that for a second because I do want to come back to that. But I just want to touch on what you said there that a lot of it depends on, on your allocation because obviously we've got an issue now where if people want to be conservative, we've talked about it on this show a lot before, that from a term deposit rate they're looking at around about only 2 to 2.5%. Two so surely that makes it exceptionally difficult uh, to make your capital last. Your safe spending rate, if you're 100% in term deposits, is going to be much, much lower than if you're a sensible mix of equities and term deposits and property. Now, what is sensible will depend on every individual and their risk tolerance. If they can't cope with the volatility of, say, being 50 or 60% in growth assets, and are liable to panic on downturns, well, they just have to get used to spending less. Mm. But certainly, if you are prepared to take a little bit more volatility in your portfolio, if you're prepared to take a long-term uh, approach to return, then you can safely spend a lot more than if you're going to concentrate on term deposits. So that's another piece of the puzzle that makes a huge difference. And the other thing to that is it wasn't so long ago that you could buy term deposits which were giving you 10 and 12 percent. Yeah. Bonds at one stage were giving you 16 percent return. Yeah, well, those days are those days are a long way gone, though, aren't they? And they're not likely they to return. And they're not coming back. But no. the point is really the underlying market conditions that exist at any particular time mm. will dictate how much you can spend. But the risk. I believe. Yeah, I'll say partly the risk of what you're saying, though, is, okay, I look at my term deposit rates, they're really low, 
uh, I can't spend much in retirement. So then what I just do is say, well, the other alternative is I just go into high income earning frank dividend shares. Uh, I can get a much higher yield, but then I've taken on a whole lot more risk. So isn't there a problem that the low interest rates can encourage people to take risks that they're really not prepared for? That is the key. It's how much risk are you prepared to take? How much volatility can you accept? And that's a critical piece. Mm. And if you can't accept the volatility, you've got to be in turn deposits and you've got to cut your spending back. Yeah. So, yes, it does push you to get out on the edge of your tolerance to risk. But a lot of that is also based on having a coach, someone will be with you and explain to you mm. during downturns and upturns what's going on. You know, is this something we should really worry about? Is this loss permanent or is it just some short-term volatility? And typically what you find is people who, you know, and I'm sure this is the case with your clients, work with you can quite happily take on more risk than someone who's trying to do it by themselves. Right. Yep. Um, it's not yeah. purely innate. It, it does help having that coaching along the way. Absolutely. Okay, so I know also, Tim, you've done a fair bit of work, and I, I use some of the spreadsheets you create around uh, confidence levels in terms of yep. you, know, you, 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 do, you do believe that you can uh, project or estimate long-term returns, but you also acknowledge that when you do that, you know, there's, a, there's a, a very high probability you won't get it exactly right. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you, you would project things for people on a, on a worst-case scenario? Because I know you believe, you believe that you want people to, to be able to cope with a worst-case scenario. Tell me a little bit about how that methodology works. Yeah. So h- how I forecast returns is, I'd say, for example, equities. How much dividends are we getting? And then add to that what kind of growth might we get. Yep. Typically, the growth comes from the increase in earning power of a company or a property, which is typically rents or profits. Yeah. And then how much people will pay for that. So from time to time, markets get very excited and they pay too much for assets. Other times, the markets get very depressed and things are cheap. So you look and say, well, how might that change? You put all that together and come with a reasonable forecast. Yeah. Now, that forecast typically, always, is just your best, my best guess, of what returns might look like over the next 10 years. I do 10-year forecasts. Yeah. But I realise that my assumptions aren't going to be right. Things are either going to be a bit better or a bit worse or a lot better or a lot worse. And what I do is go to a process to try and think in different economic environments, what kind of growth might we get in dividends and profits? How good could it be? How bad could it be? Mm-hmm. And what might people be prepared to pay for shares if things the times are really good and times are really bad? Yeah. Today, people are paying in the United States $24 for a dollar of earnings. During the GFC, they were paying $1 or $10 for a dollar mm. of earnings. Yeah, it's a massive On difference. On average, normally, yeah, it's hugely different. It's, normally, it's sort of, I think, 16, 17, 18 times is more of a, a normal time. So you try and think about that. So if at the end of the 10-year period, people are only paying 11 or $12 for earnings, what does that mean to your overall return? If times are buoyant, they're paying more, what would that mean? I then sit through all my scenarios, and I use a process called Monte Carlo simulation, but it, basically it 
it lets you assess a thousand different scenarios. And then I take, let's say, the bottom 100 of those and say, well, I've got a 90% chance I'm going to do better than this. Mm -hmm. And what I'm then trying to do is to say, okay, how much confidence we're going to make it? Now, when I think about my retirement, I kind of say, I want to be at least 95% confident my money's not going to run out. Yeah. So I started out looking at saying, what is the 5% worst case scenario? Mm. And I'll use that to project how I might do in retirement. Mm. And based on that, am I going to make it? Yeah. So so the, I mean, the old way of you know, sort of plotting some straight line and saying this is what the average we expect to be, you see that as really flawed. You see if you're projecting your capital over retirement, you've really got to look at almost the worst-case scenario to see if you could cope with that. Well, firstly, absolutely saying here's my best guess. Mm. And if I project that out and I make it kind of just, what I'm really saying is there's about a 50% chance my money's going to run out early. Right. That's a really bad plan. Yeah. Yeah. Now, more recently, I've there's a guy called Michael Kitson out of the States who's one of the best thinkers in this area, and he's pointed out to me the flaw in my plan. And the flaw in my plan is if I aim at something that I'm 95% confident that my money won't run out, it sort of says 19 times out of 20, I'm going to hit age 80, 85, and realise I can spend a lot more money. Right. And I'm going to be sitting down and saying to you, Ruben, why couldn't you be told me this when I was 60 or 65, when I really wanted to spend the money? Mm. Why did we have to wait this long? Right. And so... Because we could have worked out earlier on if we were in a really good environment or really bad environment, and you've just assumed the worst environment from the beginning and never actually changed that assumption. And, and, and worse than that, I've assumed that we could set this thing once and never review it. Mm. Now, what Kitsa says, and I absolutely think it's, it's spot on, is you can actually set a much lower confidence, call it 75% or 70%. And so you're still, you know, more than two-thirds likely to get to where you want to get to. But in those one-third of time, when things don't work out as well as you've hoped, now you have to review and make a, a cut to what you're spending. Mm, mm. And so the essential thing is if you're going to take this, uh, apply a lower confidence level to make it, spend more money when you really want to spend it, you must review it regularly. So I mean, at least once, once a year. Yeah. So that's interesting, Tim, because that's an approach where you're literally saying to people, Depending on how the market's going, that's how much you can spend. I, I see that as being a difficult conversation, to be perfectly frank. I mean, people have got what they want to spend in retirement. You know, in a way, they're coming to you to say, you know, I don't want to have to adjust my spending if Wall Street falls by 10%. That, I, I want you to set up a plan that, that, that means that I don't need to do that. And you're now telling me that I do need to reduce it every time I wake up and I see the market down by, by a couple of percent. Typically, it doesn't work that way, which is good for, for all the reasons you say. Typically, if the market's down by 10%, we should assume that our returns in future are going to be higher than mm. they were if they hadn't fallen. 
the flip side of that is if you have a great year where the market's up 20%, you say, well, great, how much more can I spend? The answer is normally, no, sorry, you're still on the same path because all we've done is taken some future returns and brought them forward. Interesting. So you're saying it actually works exactly the opposite to what I've said? Well, not quite the opposite. It it tends (laughs) to be neutral about market movement. The things that are really critical is when interest rates went from being, you know, TDs were fives and sixes to twos, that makes a massive difference because that's not something that's ever going to bounce back. You never get the money back. Right. And so that changes forecast forever. And you now go, oh, if we were assuming we could get six of our TDs, we can spend a hell of a lot more than if we think we can only spend two. Mm. Whereas the market downturn, which you assume is going to recover, is not nearly as bad. Yeah. But then you have all sorts of other things that come around. You know, a classic example. Let's say you are in that area where you've got your money in pension phase. Yeah. Let's say we get a Labor government. They say no more franking credit. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about that on this show. <laughs> that is a permanent change, and you need to cut your spending as a result of that. Mm. Yep. So, and, and that's a real thing, and it's just, it just is. Yeah. Yep. Um, so let's then... You receive an inheritance, you can yeah. increase your spending. Yeah, true. You get a, a very large unexpected bill, you have to reduce your spending. Mm, mm. So it, it, it's way more than just markets. So it needs to be a bit of a more dynamic approach uh, in terms of what people can spend. It's interesting. I, I, yeah, I recommend the critical pieces you need a plan. And the plan says, I can spend X amount of the year. At the end of the year, I'm going to give myself a pay rise for inflation. And I'm going to test it. And as long as I'm still, call it 70% confident, I can keep on going ahead. But if I get below, say, 60%, mm. now I've got to give myself a pay cut. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And if I get above 75 I can now give myself a pay rise. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to Tim talking about the different, uh, you know, the different sort of retirement income streams. Because obviously we're talking about uh, returns just from your investment portfolio. But as you've mentioned, I mean, the age pension in Australia is a is a really big factor here. Um, looking at the figures, if people, if a if a couple homeowner have less than three hundred eighty thousand dollars in assets, they actually get can get an age pension combined of about thirty five thousand dollars a year. Yeah. You can get a partial pension up to assets of about 830000 So the age pension is really an enormous, can be, uh, if your assets are around that level, an enormous part of your retirement income. How does that fit into the picture? It is absolutely crucial. If When I do my modelling with and without the pension, it changes things enormously. Mm. So even for people who say they've got a million dollars of assets, they don't get the pension, they're hoping not to get the pension, they can still spend more money because the pension's there. Mm. Because if things don't go well, the pension kicks in. Mm. Yeah, so that's, yeah. it, it, it's like being on the high wire with a safety net. You yeah. can actually take more risk because you have that safety mm. net. So it's a really important part of the Australian retirement system. But it also leads to perverse outcomes from what I can see because... For each, as I said, the pension ratchets down, you know, as your assets are higher. 
but but for each thousand dollars less you have of assets you get 78 dollars more per year in age pension for a couple so, so that's an enormous amount so that's like a 7.8 percent return so it's crazy so you end up you end up you can be in a better income position having a lower level of assets it's just perverse and and furthermore as other commentators have pointed out during the week if this mad plan to stop refunds of franking credits comes in Mm. if you are sort of a couple hundred thousand dollars outside of the pension range it's entirely in your interest to put an extension on the house get yourself back into the pension range, and now you get the franking credits, and you're way better off. It's just crazy, isn't it? it, it it's not sensible. That is what we're dealing yeah. with. So it's just going to encourage more people to try and get into the age pension net, which is exactly yeah. what they don't want to do, because that's that's the biggest pending hole in the budget. Oh, it's terrible policy. It's mm. a terrible, terrible policy. Mm. But as you said, from an individual point of view, it, it's critically important as you say, to model the age pension into it. So the American style of just that 4% without any age pension is really not applicable here. And and I find, and it depends on lots of things, but on age and how much risk people are prepared to take and so on, often the amount you can spend is up to more like 7 or 8%. Really? So, And and it does depend on lots of things. Mm. So you you can't just say, oh, I'll spend 7 or 8%. It it is different for everybody. Mm. So, unfortunately, you know, back to the first, what are the rules of thumb? There's only really one good rule of thumb is you must get advice on this. Mm. Yeah. And your own circumstances will dictate some very different outcomes. Yeah, yeah, because there's really a lot of factors at play here. Is to say, it would be great to be able to simplify it, but... But you can't because, as you say, it depends on what your starting point, your age is. It depends on what sort of risk you're comfortable to take with your investments. Uh, depends on it, your health. Yeah. How many assets you've got. Yeah. Assets out, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of assets that are not income producing mm. but still count for the pension, all of that makes a big difference. Yeah. So let's talk about another, another retirement income stream, Tim, which uh, has become, you know, more and more popular. Uh, which is annuities. Uh, Challenger, for example, are one of the biggest annuity, well, I think the biggest annuity provider in Australia, uh, and apparently they're doing exceptionally well. Annuities, which just for our listeners, basically allow you to, um, you you invest some money and you get a a guaranteed income stream either for life or for a certain period of time, and you can have different features of it, uh, whether or not it's indexed to inflation or it's not. Uh, and it ends up with different calculations. But an annuity, and certainly the way Challenger will market it, they'll say, look, you use an annuity, and that can help you lock in your core level of income. Right. So where do you feel, so, so even if markets do bad things, you've got this kind of guaranteed core base. How do you think something like an annuity fits into the, to the overall retirement picture or retirement plan for people? Because it kind of does take away, it eliminates some of that investment risk. I think annuities are a really important part of the mix. Mm. Uh, they won't work for everybody. No. But they'll work in a lot of circumstances where, I mean, I get the sense that people, a, a lot of advisors aren't looking nearly closely enough at these things. Mm. Uh, the government is very keen that people start using annuities in retirement. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, in 
some cases there's some really attractive asset test benefits in there yeah. that can produce quite dramatic outcomes. Mm. Not in all cases, but in some cases. Mm. And they're certainly worth exploring. The other piece of it is um, the annuities are really tightly regulated mm-hmm. by the government. Yeah. Now, and the important thing to understand when you're thinking, well, what's the chance that a annuity provider can go broke? Is it's the wrong question. The right question is annuity providers run entities called statutory funds. Yep. So, pick an example, Challenger. Mm-hmm. If Challenger, the organisation, went broke, that may have zero impact on people who are holding annuities. Mm because it's a statutory fund. Challenger provi- are obliged to keep enough capital in there so that even if the underlying investments do poorly, uh, there's still enough money to pay out the annuity. Yeah, but one of the issues with annuities at the moment uh, that might turn people off is because interest rates are so low. So if you're locking in, say, a very long-term product like that, you're locking in at low interest rates. Is that a turn-off for people? Oh, it's clearly a turn-off. Yeah. My sense is people are, have got the wrong concern. Mm. The right concern ought to be, what if interest rates never go up again? Or, even worse, actually go lower. Mm. Some of the rates you can lock in for long periods of time in those annuities are really quite attractive. Yeah, not attractive compared to what you could have got 10 years ago. Mm. But compared to... So, I mean, I haven't looked at the rates recently, but you may be able to get 3.5% for 10 years. Mm. And you say, well, that's not much. Well, <laughs> government bonds only pay you 27 mm. for 10 years. Mm. And so how much are interest rates going to go up? My expectation is not very much. Well, that's actually a point, Tim, because you just said that sort of a bit uh, off the cuff there. But saying, what if interest rates don't go up? I mean, that seems like a pretty dramatic comment because everything runs in cycles and people will always expect, you know, people still talk about the 80s and they talk about interest rates going up. How could you suggest that they may not? Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I I think they're going to go up a little bit, Mm. but not nearly as much in the past. Now, the whole interest rate structure in Australia starts with the Reserve Bank when they set cash rates. Right. Typically, they lift interest rates when they think inflation's breaking out. They'll lift interest rates enough to slow the economy down so inflation cools and everything goes on as usual. Mm-hmm. It used to be to slow things down, they had to take cash rates to five or six. Yeah. Four would be absolutely speeding everything up and the economy is going mad and inflation be breaking out. Mm. Today, we've had interest rates at one and a half for think, the longest period without a change of cash rates. Yeah. No signs of inflation whatsoever. No. So something has definitely changed. Something has definitely changed. Furthermore, one of the things that has changed is the amount of debt that Australians have taken on to finance housing purchases has gone through the roof. Yeah, that's for sure. And so there's, there's compared to 10 or 15 years ago, there's three times as much household debt. Mm. So that means when the RBA increases interest rates by 1%, it has three times the impact it used to have. Right. So they're going to be very, very careful to do that. 
when they put their foot on the brakes, they don't have to press nearly as hard as they used mm. to. So that's, and that means yeah. interest rates will never get to those same... I, I don't think they'll get to those levels we've seen before until that debt has been paid off. Yeah. And that's 20 or 30 years away. I think that might be 20 or 30 generations away that that debt's paid <laughs> off <laughs> with so, the level of yeah, debt I'm, that people are taking on. I think 20 or 30 years is wildly optimistic, Tim. So that's why I, I, I think the whole interest rate structure... Mm. is much lower today than it has been in the past, and it's going to be there for a very, very long time. So that's interesting when you think about that. So the fact that the Gen Xs and Gen Ys are taking on more and more debt is actually to the detriment of the baby boomers because it's going to keep interest rates low and it's going to keep the baby boomers' earnings on their term deposits low. Although the baby boomers have made out with house price increase, I don't think we should feel too sorry. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to think about it because because the X Ys are always blaming the baby boomers for all the trouble. So I'm just trying to, you know, <laughs> see if there's a flip side to it. There is a little bit, yes. All right, Tim. Uh, well, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I always ask people for their top three tips. So I just want to ask you for your top three tips for people planning retirement to ensure that their capital lasts longer than they do. You've got a maximum of two minutes. Okay, firstly, try and get an accurate assessment of what your life life expectancy is. And typically that's not quite found by looking at the life table. Because that's where you're going to plan again. There's a website called mylongevity.com.au. It takes into account your health, family history, stress levels, a whole bunch of things. And I think that's a really good start. Yep. Second thing, based around that, go and talk to someone like yourself who actually can make the calculations, which are complicated, and then develop a plan. And the plan should have in it, how much can I spend and how will I review that spending? If things go well or not so well, what sort of confidence do I need? And then make sure you actually do review that every year. Because if you take a slightly lower level of confidence you're going to make it, spend more money up front, which is the right thing to do, you then must review it. So your plans are try and get a rough idea of how long you might live. Secondly, develop a plan and then actually review that plan every year. Terrific, Tim. That's fantastic tips. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know it's been a challenge uh, with your travel arrangements, uh, but it's always great to have you on the show. And uh, safe travels, I think, back to Sydney, if I'm not mistaken. Great. Thanks, Ruben. A pleasure. Okay, Tim. See you Thanks. later. Bye. Bye-bye. And that comes to the end of our show today. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, I encourage you to uh, subscribe on iTunes to the Finance Hour. Uh, and certainly leave us a review or go to my website, adaptwealth.com.au, and I've got all the podcasts on there as well. Uh, For now, that's the end of the show and we will be back next week. So don't forget to tune in then.